0: Over the last few weeks, we've started this study in First Peter. I, I guess we started it on the first day of the year um, this year, and I have found this to be an incredibly encouraging, incredibly enriching study for me personally, uh, a very enriching experience for me spiritually as... We really see the heart of the Apostle Peter, the pastoral heart of the Apostle Peter uh, on full display. Remember, he's writing to these scattered, suffering, few saints there in Asia Minor. They're having all kinds of difficulties and heartache and heartbreak and hardship and And anguish, uh, not to mention the reality of persecution and the suffering that comes because of it. And yet, Peter called them. You remember, we've been spending weeks and weeks on this now. At the very beginning, he called them to praise the Lord. He himself said, bless the Lord. And he he calls them to bless the Lord, to to, to praise the Lord, even in the midst of these days of suffering. And and we asked the question the last number of weeks, why would he do that? Because it seems sort of out, out of place when somebody's suffering it, it just seems out of place for somebody else to say praise the lord but that's what he does and he he gives us three reasons for that three reasons why they ought to praise the lord even in the midst of their suffering he he reminded them of their relationship to the their heavenly father he he says we've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ he 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 calls them to bless the lord uh, bless god the the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He he calls us to bless the Lord because we have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Not only that, but because we have been regenerated to hope. We have a new hope. We, We have a living hope. We've been born again, just as Christ was raised again, so we might also. And he finally, last week, we saw him calling them to praise the Lord because of the reservation in heaven. There is reserve for you, this heavenly inheritance. And, and it's kept for you, and you are kept for it. And there's just this security that is in Christ. And, and be- that's why you praise the Lord, because no one can take this away from you. And we closed last week with that statement, in this you rejoice You are filled with joy. You're filled with rejoicing because of this wonderful inheritance. The the heavenly inheritance that is awaiting every believer. Well this morning we're going to pick up now on verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. And in verses 6 and 7 Peter tackles the reality of their present trials. He tackles the reality of their present trials head on. You see He's wanting to confess the truth that our eternal inheritance, we we have this future eternal inheritance, but he's not wanting that to distract from the reality that there are very present trials right now, that there is present suffering that we experience right now. Yes, as believers, we have a future glorious eternal inheritance, but we also presently experience suffering And trials in this life. And what we find here. And I am so excited to share this with you this morning. I hope that we can get through verses 6 and 7. But I I want you to see what Peter does in these these verses. He provides us. He gives you and I. uh, uh, Essential truths. That will help to cement our faith. Even in the midst of trial. He gives us these essential truths. That will help to. To fire us and and, and, and and strengthen us and help us to embrace trials even as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, verses six and seven he he gives us first of all a, a divine perspective on trial, a divine perspective on trials, and then that divine perspective gives way to a divine purpose for trials. And then that finishes up with a a divine product of trials. So a divine perspective, a divine purpose, and a divine product. You see it right here. It just falls off the bone. This is so rich. Look, brothers and sisters, at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to present to, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our Father, now we've read your word and we pray for a greater understanding of it so that you will transform us. Do a work of revival here today. Through your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you see it really clearly here. He, he gives this divine perspective on trials. I, I just want you to see this issue here. Peter's talking about trials. He, he says it right here in verse uh, uh, 6. In this you greatly rejoice. or You rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now, that's a question for you. What are trials? Well, the word trials just refers to trouble. Trouble, difficulty, hardship. It's troubling things, difficult things. That's what he's talking about here. What we need to do today, brothers and sisters, is we need to rightly think about trials. We need to be able to rightly think, as Christians, about the troubling times in our lives. Now, when I talk about trials, when I talk about these troubling times... I'm referring to the ways, that the instances, the events, the, the situations in our lives which have a way of testing our character. So sometimes the word trial could be used as a word test. I'm referring to the ways in which our character our, our character is being tested. It's almost always in the fires of trouble that the true character of a man or woman is is really seen. Those are the trials of life. And Peter wants to help his readers and us to think rightly about trials. And in this one verse, brothers and sisters, in this one verse, in verse 6, I'm not overestimating this, I'm not overstating this, he gives us everything we need to know about those testings, those trials, those troubling times, those difficult times, that test our character, he gives us everything we need to know. he gives us a divine perspective on trials and he and, and he mentions four things: first, he tells us that trials are defined, defined. M- let me show you what I mean in this you rejoice though, and then just underline this word now for a little while. now that makes you think what right now, right? present time. Now for a little while. The first thing that you notice is that he refers to the present nature of these tests, the present nature of these trials. He's helping us. He's been helping us to anticipate the great heavenly reward. And that's true. We have a great heavenly reward, but now, right now, Trials are defined. They, they are constrained to right now. They are restricted to this present time. Difficult times of trouble are restricted, confined, defined to this present time. Then you see the, not only the word now, but he says for a little while. Now that's just one word in the Greek language. It's used in James 4.14, which is probably familiar to you. Listen to what it says, James 4.14. What is your life? He says, for you are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. That's the word, a little time. Listen, a divine perspective on trials means you realize that trials can only happen. They can only endure a lifetime. They can only last a lifetime. They are defined. They are limited. They never last forever. And that's the proper divine perspective on trials. They're restricted, they're constrained within a brief light- lifetime. What is a little while when it's compared with eternity? It's nothing. It's like the mist you know, you spray a can of air freshener and you see it, and then it's gone. That's the perspective of trials. You may be enduring a difficult time, a troubling time right now, but brothers and sisters, I want you to know the divine perspective is it's just a little time. It's not going to last. Not only are those trials defined, but listen, those trials are designed. They are designed. Now look at this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, and then stop there, uh, get this ne- these next two words, if necessary. If necessary. One word in the Greek language, and that one word, I remember spending time with Dr. Zodiades, and uh, we spent probably an entire day on just examining this one word, and he said, the best way I can describe this word to you is it describes that which is prophetically necessary. That which is necessary inevitable trials are not just defined but trials are designed in other words they are not some willy-nilly accident every trial in the life of a christian is authorized by god every trial in the life of a christian is authorized by god nothing slips by him nothing sort of evades his notice He is the one who gives permission for trouble, which tests the character of those who say they follow him. That's what's what's, uh, brought out in those words, if necessary. Trials are inevitable. And you know why trials are are inevitable? You know why trials are inevitable? And this is going to This this just blows the mind of so many today who have been influenced by Pentecostalism and the the third wave movement, you know, uh, charismatic teaching. Trials are inevitable because for the Christian, trials are determined by the will of God. I want you to look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3. This is an emphasis that he gives us. In this book, 1 Peter chapter 3. Notice how he speaks of trials here or suffering in 1 Peter 3.17. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's what? will. Suffering for the believer is determined by the will of God. He says the same thing, only a different way over in chapter four, verse 19. He says, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will. Friends, The divine perspective on trials is that trials are are by design. They are designed ultimately by God. They are not designed by anyone else. They are not designed by any other force, spiritual or otherwise. Trials, you need to be able to say this, trials only take place if they are willed by God. Amy Carmichael wrote this in her diary. She said first, about this time of suffering in her life, she said, first he brought me here. It is by his will I am in this straight place. In that fact, I will rest. Second, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace to behave as his child. Then, he will make the trial a blessing, teaching me the lessons he intends to learn and working in me the grace he means to bestow. Finally, she says, in his good time, he can bring me out again how and when he knows. So she said, I am here in this time of trial by God's appointment, under His keeping, in His training, and for His time. Trials are designed. It's not a tragedy. Trials are defined. Trials are designed. Third, back to chapter 1, trials are distressing. Distressing. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved. Stop right there. Grieved. The word "grieved" here refers to that which is. Uh, it refers to to severe emotional, mental, or physical anguish. It's a word that speaks of of extreme sorrow, painful affliction. That's something that we ought to know about trials. We can be talking the way we're talking about trials and someone might think that troubling times are no big deal. Eh, Water off a duck's back, man. Don't worry about it. Grin and bear it. Cowboy up. No problem. That is exactly not the way to think about trials. That is not the way that a Christian thinks about trials. We're not ignoring them. We're not trying to be stoic here. Listen, trials are painful. Trials hurt. They are severely dr- distressing. They're, they're, you're not being a super Christian. If you're like, I could grin and bear it, man. No problem. That's not being a super Christian. Trials affect you, trials, trials afflict you. They are grievous. It's not wrong to admit, I'm really hurting. This is painful. Trials are defined, they are designed, and they are distressing. And then lastly, trials are diverse. Now, again, look at it it's just right here in the text. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The word various is just a word that means uh, multicolored. Uh, There are many ways. Trials come in many forms. There are many ways in which our character may be tested. There are many flames of a fire. There are many degrees of heat, many shades of trouble in the life of, of the saint. Think about how many of us can testify to this. In one way or another, we've experienced so many shades of trial, so many ways in which our character has been tested. God has many ways that he authorizes to fire the faith of those who follow him. Sometimes there are times of severe anguish. You face that severe anguish in, in particular times of heartache. Other times God brings in a physical malady. Sometimes we experience great personal loss. There are the heart-wrenching times when you've been betrayed by a good friend or when you, your own family has turned their back on you. Yeah, there's the threat of personal harm with, and suffering of persecution. Think about Job and all of the different ways that suffering, that he was afflicted. All of the various multicolored ways in which God afflicted his servant. And begin to, to count the ways in which he experienced the, the exacerbating and, and grievous trials of his life. Peter is doing in this verse, he is giving us a divine perspective on trials. They're defined, they're, they're limited. They are, uh, to, 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 to this present life, they are designed by God. God, your Father. They are distressing. Yes, they're painful and they're they're, uh, 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 they're various, they're diverse, they, they show up in different ways in different times in your life. But I want to move on quickly because I don't want to miss this whole, I want you to see the, how this all fits together. I want you to move from a divine perspective on trials to the divine purpose for trials. And that's what we see there in verse 7. You see that word, so that? Any, any Greek student would look at this and it's just the one word. It's a purpose clause. You would see that and know immediately that he's giving us a purpose clause here. He's giving us a result here. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. What purpose would God possibly have in these trials, in authorizing trials, these these difficult tests of character? Well, I'll tell you, He has the the purpose of proving your faith. Proving your faith. Now, it's interesting because we could probably say that that He authorizes trials in our lives to, to test our faith, Uh, he says it here to test the genuineness of your faith. And he brings out this illustration, right? He he talks about how, how, how gold is purified in fire. And so we could say, well, one of the reasons that God tests your character is to purify your faith. Of course, you know, he doesn't bring up all the details, but basically you have this idea that gold is melted down. And you've heard this before, how the, the impurities then rise to the top so they can be scraped aside so that the, the gold can be seen to be, be, be pure. Paul has this in mind in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, when he says this, we do not want you to become unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself." Indeed, he says we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul says that there was a time of terrible trouble in his life, a time of terrible distress in his life, so much that he despaired of life itself. But this was not a tragedy, it was not a grave mistake. It was on divine purpose to, quote, make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God was purifying his faith. He was driving him to rely on, not on himself, but on God. And that's exactly what happened when God called Abraham to sacrifice his only son. That's exactly what happened in that dreadful satanic attack in Job. Listen to what J.I. Packer said. He said the reason why the Bible spends so much of its time reiterating that God is a strong rock, a firm defense, and a sure refuge and help for the weak is that God spends so much of his time showing us that we are weak both mentally and morally and dare not trust ourselves to find or follow the right road. He said when we walk along a clear road feeling fine and someone takes our arm to help us, likely we would impatiently shake him off. But when we are caught in rough country in the dark with a storm brewing and our strength spent and someone takes our arm to help us, we would thankfully lean on Him. And God wants us to feel that our way through life is rough and perplexing so that we may learn to lean on Him thankfully. Therefore, He takes steps to drive us out of self-confidence, to trust in Himself, to, in the classic scriptural phrase for the secret of godly man's life, to wait on the Lord. Someone once said this. They were so thankful for trials in their lives because those trials caused him to recognize his own faults and come to God for, for help. He said, Those trials, he said it this way, those trials caused me to be a cross bearer, not a cross maker. Because, he said, because I have been so sorely tried, because I've suffered. Those trials have helped me not be a cross-maker, but a uh, a uh, cross-bearer. But the emphasis that Peter has is on this, the proving of the genuineness of faith. I want you to think about this. God authorizes the fiery trials of life in order to demonstrate the authenticity of faith. Now, some of us don't understand this correctly because we have the idea that God proving our faith is to prove something to him. But that's not the case. It's never to prove something to him because we know that God knows all things. He doesn't need that for his benefit, but listen, he does that for ours. And this is the joy of the Christian. This is why James says, count it all, what? joy, when you fall into what? Various trials. There it is again, various trials. In the midst of trials, God does something. He proves to us over and over again that faith is the real deal. One commentator said, when you go through a test, if you try to solve that by more of the junk of the world, it will go up with the rest of it. But if you rise above that by faith and hold on to God and Christ, your faith is proven. Your faith is proven. He said, the point is this. If you come out of the other side of the test, believing God, trusting God, believing Christ, trusting Christ, then you know that your faith is real. God has a purpose in trials. And that that purpose is to prove to us the authenticity of, of our faith, I co- let me say it this way: I come through a particularly grievous time in my life, and I find myself not turning from Christ. What am I left to say? Praise God! I didn't, I didn't turn from Him. And I didn't turn from him, not because my hold on him was so great, but I didn't turn from him because his hold on me was so powerful. You see. He sends trials. And it's in this way that we bless God. We actually count it joy when we face various trials, the fiery, troubling difficulties of our life, because we know that that's an opportunity for God to show us something. The authenticity of our faith, but not only a proven faith, but he shows us a priceless faith. You see, a, a, a proven faith is a priceless faith. It is a, a precious faith. It's the greatest reality of your life. It is greater than any other person. It's greater than any other possession. It's greater than any other pursuit of your life. Just like gold is seen to be more precious when it goes through the fire. Like, imagine Chandler gives uh, Adelaide a wedding ring that hasn't yet been purified. I know that it's a little bit, uh, you know, it's not, it's, I guess it's still precious to you, but, you know, he gets it out of the, you know, the, the gum machine or something like that. It's not very valuable. But you say this has been purified. It's gone through the, th- man, this is something that is valuable. And he says that's exactly what happens with your faith. It's exactly what happens with your faith. The trials of life purify and prove your faith, but they're used to demonstrate that faith is more valuable than anything else. How How so? Well, listen, how many of you have walked through the valleys of the shadow of death, and yet you refuse to turn from Christ? How many men and women this morning have gone through times of great loss, and you only say, I will not turn from Christ? I will never forget that day some years ago when I was, in, I was traveling and I, I got the phone call from Winnie Otema in Uganda, and David had just passed away, and it was a terrible, terrible time and great sadness. And, and through her tears, she said, He's gone, but I will not turn from my Christ. I will not turn. From my Christ, it was Spurgeon who said, "I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me up against the rock of Ages." You see what trials do. They have a way of purifying and, and proving our faith and demonstrating there's nothing more precious. The most precious possession of my life is faith, and sometimes God takes everything else away from you. So that that's all you have, and you bless God for it. So we see a divine perspective on trials. We, we move from that divine perspective, and we see a divine purpose. But I just want to point this out to you very quickly, a divine product of trials. And he does that in verse seven. Again, so that the test of genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, and look at this, may be found. Interestingly enough, we're talking about gold and finding gold, may be found. That word is the word from which we get our word eureka, right? (laughs) Eureka may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Praise, what is it? Praise, glory, and honor when? When Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, we might look at this as referring to the praise and glory and honor that our proven precious faith offers to Jesus Christ. I I imagine it somehow this way. He he uses that word praise, and, and praise is a word that, that ex- that exalts it, it 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 exalts the excellency the excellency of character the excellency of quality in someone or something and so I imagine this that Jesus Christ he he appears whether that's in rapture, whatever it is, he appears and we see him again. And he says, and the, 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 your faith that has been proven, that has been purified and proven and precious is found to result in, in exclaiming the excellence of Jesus. That is to say, Jesus is more excellent than those other things. He says praise and glory. Glory is a way of speaking of, of eminence, the, the preeminence, the The far exceeding superiority of Jesus Christ. Jesus is far exceedingly superior to every other thing. And then you think of of honor. Honor is is high esteem. It's, It's high regard. It's admiration. What he says is, In that day when Jesus Christ comes again, those of us who have gone through the fiery trials of life, and by the way, every Christian goes through fiery trials, he said, what we're going toward is that day when Jesus Christ is revealed and we can speak of his excellence and we can speak of his eminence and we can speak of his esteem, we can admire him and exalt him together because we've come through those those trials. And all those things we see exactly what is given to Jesus when we who have stood at the test of trials come through on the other end in that last and final day. I want you to see the point of these two verses. The point of these two verses is to say that trials are a God-ordained means to reveal the genuineness and pricelessness of your faith so that on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed, on that day when He appears, that proven and priceless faith will acclaim and exclaim, Jesus as more excellent than anything else on the earth. As Jesus, uh, His superiority, his, his, his worth. Or maybe there's another way to look at this. Maybe, when Peter says, may be found to result in praise... Could that praise be our praise? What do you mean, Joe? Well, I'm talking about the way that Paul used it in in Romans chapter 2, verse 9. He said, He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not of the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Can you imagine that in the, in the day when Jesus Christ is revealed and it is fully and finally revealed that our faith is the real deal and we hear this from our Lord, we hear him commending us? That, well, Can you imagine what it will be like in that day when you see Jesus and he doesn't look away from you in embarrassment? He doesn't try to act like he doesn't see you. Oh my goodness, there they are. Let me just not make eye contact. Can you imagine what it will be like when he doesn't turn away from us, but rather when he welcomes us? And when he says glory, could that be the the full and final glorification from all sin and sorrow and sickness and separation that is taken away from us in that moment? Like the, the songwriter said, when by the gift of his infinite grace I am afforded in heaven a place just to be there and to look on his face will be glory for me? Could he be talking about our praise? Not, not to build us up, but to be like, are you kidding me? Could he be talking about our full glorification? Our honor, what is honor? Maybe that's a reference to eternal reward. Just the hearing of those words, well done, good and faithful servant, well done. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Can you imagine the joy that will be on our faces in that day, friends? And we look back and all those distressing troubles of life and we see an instant, how God had authorized that particular fire in our life to fire a faith more, worth more than gold. When we will receive our eternal reward, the reward of a faith which he gave to us in the first place, we'll know in that day the extent to which God has gone to rescue us from our sin and to rescue us from his wrath. Again, the hymnal writer, hymn writer said, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ, one glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase, so bravely run the race, what, till we see Christ. And I think that's what Peter has in mind here. He is trying to stir these faithful suffering few up to look forward to that great day of anticipation Even though they're suffering right now, various trials. What are you? Are you sick? Are you suffering? Are you bearing the brunt of a a burden that you feel is too great for you to bear? That did not come by accident, dear child of God. That came on divine purpose to show you that your faith is real. You see, if in the end you you come to that trial and you say, that's it, I'm I'm done with Jesus, enough with Jesus, no more. Well, that just shows what? that your faith was not the real thing. But you come through that, and you say, in the words of Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You say, where'd that come from? That came from him. I'll tell you what, what is more precious to me the older that I get, is this faith, not just the faith faith once for all delivered to the saints, but my faith, my hope, my trust in him by which I grasp that truth that has been delivered? When you face a trial, if you can hear it this way, when you face a trial, it's a gift. It hurts. Remember hearing the story, I think I told you this before, of the little boy. Who had been diagnosed with cancer and needed to go through a particularly painful treatment as the only way that he could be cured from his cancer. And the one day when the little boy had, was sitting there at the doctor's office receiving this painful, painful treatment, it had been done and he looked at the doctor and said, Thank you for my hurting, doctor. Can you look to God and say that? God, Thank you for these painful trials. I know I lost a loved one. A particularly grievous time in my life. My family's turned away from me. My friends betrayed me. Whatever it might be, you say, God, I hate this, but I love you. Thank you. Because you're revealing to me what is really important. When you're doubting your faith, as many of you are perhaps right now, you're doubting your faith and you don't know, am I a real Christian? Am I not a real Christian? What I often say to those those folks is, is as I'm dealing with them, I'll say, turn away from Him. Walk away from Jesus right now. Turn your back on Him. Go sin your fill. And almost inevitably, I hear this response. I can't do that. I don't want to do that. And I say, why? He said, well, I love him. Remember that happened in John chapter 6 when, when there was a great crowd following Jesus and he began to say some hard things and that great crowd began dwindling down and down because he was saying hard things and Jesus looked to his disciples and he said, are you going to walk away too? And Peter said, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. You see what trials do to prove to us our, our faith? So I ask you. You're standing. Remember, we used to sing that song, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided. No turning back. no turning. You're standing at the crossroads of your life. You're standing in front of the cross right now. And you look to Jesus. And my question is, as you go through the fire, as you go through these trying times, everything seems to be falling apart in your life. Your house is falling apart. Your job's falling apart. Your family—all these. Dif- My question to you is this: Do you turn? Are you going to turn from Jesus? Are you going to be with a, a Holy Spirit resolve in your heart? Say, no turning back. No turning back.